couple things to say real quickly before the scripture reading, so that's why. Uh, the first is Nicene Creed. That's a workout, isn't it? <laughs> Three slides. And at the end, the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. That's like a tongue twister for me. I can't tell you how many times I've tripped over that. So, Brian, you got to coach me this week, man. Help me out on that. Um, so as you, you heard before, or most likely as you saw before, there is the women's tea for the Chico Adventist Church going on out in the courtyard. And as I'm preaching right now, I'm seeing women come with some wonderful desserts to the table closest to the door. So uh, if I sort of get distracted during the sermon, uh, lose my train of thought, you know why. That's what's happening. Um, I got to taste one of those desserts before church and... Uh, it's good. <laughs> They're all good. Um, so uh, I had you sit down before the scripture reading because I want to give a little bit of a recap. The reason why is because we're jumping back into Romans this week, and it's been four weeks since we've done that. Uh, we've been out of the mix with studying Romans because of Easter, Palm Sunday, the week before that Brian finished his series on First Peter. So uh, before we get into this little chunk of text that we'll look at today, I just want to give you a refresher on what we saw right beforehand. Um, mostly the beginning of chapter 7 is what I want to sort of uh, help our memory kind of, well that's redundant, help our memory remember, but that's what I want to talk about real quick. So the beginning of Romans 7, we shifted gears and we started talking very directly about the law of God. I say the law of God there because I want to make sure you know, and not just any law, not laws against speeding or jaywalking, but specifically the law of God that he gave to his people Israel that showed them morally how they were supposed to live. So think of the Ten Commandments there. But then it also showed them in a more ceremonial way how it is that they were supposed to conduct themselves. Laws about offerings and sacrifices and how to live with one another. This is the, the law of God given to Israel, and, and the focus of the beginning of Romans 7 was that we have been freed from that law as Christians. And what Paul meant by that is not that we're free from it in the sense that the Ten Commandments don't matter anymore, that we just sort of turn a blind eye to it, but rather we're freed from it in the sense that the law is no longer what motivates us towards obedience. When I think about honoring God, I'm not motivated by saying, I better keep the law but I'm motivated by his grace and love that I have through Christ. Of course, when you talk about being freed from something, when you talk about being liberated from something, you kind of begin to assume that that thing that you're freed from must be bad. It must be evil or wrong. And so that actually is the question that Paul's going to pick up in the little bit of text that we'll look at today. Is the law bad or evil? Keep that in the back of your minds as we read this text for today. So if you would, now stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Sorry for the sit down, stand up, sit down, stand up. But your cardiologist will be happy with you. So starting uh, in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, God's word says this. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, 
But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Lord, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts in here would be pleasing in your sight. We ask it and pray it in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys, for standing. You may be seated. I promise that'll be the last time standing for a little bit. So uh, the title of today's sermon is Know Thyself. It's kind of a common, popular phrase, but you might not be aware where it comes from. Uh, This was actually the inscription that was on the entryway, the the entry arch to the Temple of Apollo in ancient Greece. The Temple of Apollo was uh, was the home of a very famous person in Greek known as the Oracle of Delphi. And when you went to visit the Oracle, you would pass through the archway that said, Know Thyself at the top of it. Now, some of you guys might be familiar with the Oracle of Delphi. If you aren't, though, there's just a, a little sort of description of, of what that was. The Oracle was something like a soothsayer, a fortune teller. And so people would come to visit the Oracle to have their future foretold, usually in the form of a riddle, which made it kind of complicated and interesting. But famous people all throughout ancient Greece, whether it be leaders, politicians, warriors, and generals, they'd come visit the oracle to hear what she had to say about their future. But of all of them, perhaps the most famous of the oracle's visitors was the philosopher Socrates, who when he was a young man, passed through the archway that said, know thyself, and went to visit the oracle to hear his future foretold. And what the oracle told him was this, you, Socrates, are the wisest amongst all the Greeks. Now, you'd think that that's good news, that that would be a flattering thing to hear, something that would make you like puff out your chest and be like, yeah, I'm the wisest. Not the case for Socrates. He actually was dismayed by that pronouncement because he was well aware of how little he knew. How can I be the wisest amongst all the Greeks? I hardly know anything. He was convinced that the oracle had to be wrong. And so he sets out on this course in his life. You could even say maybe his entire career is dedicated to proving the oracle wrong. He talks to as many people as he can talk to to find somebody wiser than him. He he discusses topics and subjects with as many people as he can to sort of demonstrate his ignorance and to prove that he is not the wisest amongst the Greeks. But by the end of his life, he's finally ready to concede that after all, the oracle was right. He's standing in front of the tribunal of Athens, the very same group that would actually condemn him to death. And he tells them, what the oracle said to me all those years ago has proved to be true. I didn't understand it at the time, but now I do. I am indeed the wisest amongst all the Greeks because I'm the only one who realizes that I have no wisdom at all. It's because he alone knew how little he knew that he was proclaimed to be the one that knew the most. 
And it's when, uh, remember, uh, that the inscription, going into the temple, know thyself. It's when Socrates actually began to know himself, or more accurately, to know what he wasn't, that he arrived at something that we could call wisdom. So fast forward now a few hundred years. Now we're in the first century A.D., we're reading the letter of Paul describing the law of God and how it's at work in his heart. And I want to read one of the verses that we just read a second ago for you and, and see if it sounds anything like what we just talked about with Socrates. This is halfway through verse 7. It says this, For I would not have known, there's that word know, for I would have not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. In other words, I would never have known myself if the law hadn't shown me what was really deep down inside. I would not have ever known the depth of my sin if the law hadn't come in and shown me what God says is right or wrong. And I actually began to see what truly was going on within. I would have never seen the depths of myself. And when God's law comes on the scene... And shows us what it is that God requires of us. And then we see ourselves and see that there's this infinite gap between those two things. Maybe, just maybe, we might arrive at something like that wisdom of Socrates to say, wow, I don't know much at all. I thought I knew real justice. Apparently I don't. I thought I knew how to love my neighbor. But I don't think I do. I thought I knew what it was to be a righteous person upstanding before God, but I'm not. The law of God is what's able to open our eyes to that. So really, if there's one big takeaway that I want us to have today in this sermon, in this reflection on this text, it's this, that when you know yourself, And what I mean by that is you know yourself to be broken and desperate and far away from what God requires us to be. When you know yourself like that, it is a good thing. I know that seems bizarre because it's not comfortable to know yourself like that, to see yourself. It's painful. It's humiliating. It's uncomforting. It's a bummer. I remember one time in church, this is years ago, we were leading a, a corporate prayer of confessing our sin before the Lord. Somebody came up to me afterwards and was like, man, that's really a bummer. Church isn't supposed to be a bummer. <laughs> so, well, actually, you know what? Hold on to that statement. We're going to come back to that at the end, the bummer idea. But even though it, it is painful and uncomfortable and a bummer, it is a good place to be. Like I said, we're going to come back to that later, and I'm going to unpack why that is. But for now, let's just let it sort of stay there. I want to add another quick uh, uh, addendum to that, though, and it's this. If knowing yourself is a good thing, if knowing yourself is the right good place to be, then the law of God that takes us there, that brings us to that place, is also good. Remember, I I mentioned that to you before we even read the text for today, that that's Paul's burden in this little chunk of uh, verses right here, is that he wants to anticipate this objection that, oh, 
The law must be bad. It must be evil if we're liberated from it. And he says, no, 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 no. Wait a second. The law is good. It's God-given. It's holy. It's righteous. It's just. And part of the reason he's able to say that is because it's the one thing that can open your eyes to see yourself and to see your need. I'm going to back up a little bit, though, and sort of... uh, Take a a second to look very finely and closely about just the type of argument that Paul's making in these five verses. Because I think it'll be helpful. So, like we said, when you talk about being liberated from something, the knee-jerk reaction is that something that you're liberated from must have been a bad thing. So all this talk about being liberated from the law, we say, oh, well... I guess the law really is worthless and wrong, or evil, bad. You know, we could use all sorts of synonyms for it not being very helpful anymore. And Paul says, wait a second, we've got to be more nuanced than that. And the way he wants to be more nuanced is by doing this. He wants to say, let's make a distinction between the law of God. Let's just say the Ten Commandments for simplicity tonight. A, a, a distinction between the Ten Commandments... And our sin, which is able to take advantage of those commandments God gives and twist them and distort them and use them to amplify the problems in our life that were already there. So looking back at the text, you remember the very start of it, he says, shall we conclude that that the law is sin? Absolutely not, by no means. But then let's skip forward to verse 8. It says this. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. The law didn't make Paul sin. The law didn't make Paul covet, which I I hope you know what that word means. It means to to, uh, inordinately desire something. Say, I need it so bad, I'll be lost without it. The law didn't make Paul do that. His sin was already there. His covetousness was already there. Rather, what the law did is when it came on the scene, when God said, this is right and this is wrong, this is what I require of you, this is what I need you not to do, then sin says, oh boy, we're going to take advantage of that. And I get an opportunity now to, to, to rebel against God's authority. He's clearly now defined what's right and what's wrong, and it all of a sudden makes sin come alive and say, all right, I'm going to make this really bad. (laughs) I'm going to take this commandment that God has given, and I'm going to twist it, and I'm going to deform it, and it's going to cause all the sin within me to be amplified even more than it was before. If we keep reading here, hopefully this will sort of finish out the picture At the very end of verse 8, it says this. It says, For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. I take that to mean when he says that that sin was dead apart from the law, it's that it was like it was lying dormant. It was waiting. It was in this latency period. But the law comes on the scene and all of a sudden it it, it springs into action. 
And, and when Paul says here that I was alive before the law came, he's not meaning that he was innocent or that he was righteous or that he was blameless. Rather, this is what he means, that he was ignorant of who he really was. He was unaware of what was really going on within him. And all these desires and impulses that were swirling within his heart and his spirit are now defined. And they're now shown to be what they really are. Rebellion against God. Transgression against how God has made us and who he's called us to be. And all of a sudden, Paul, who was sort of oblivious to what was really going on, his eyes are opened and he sees clearly who he is. He knows himself. And he knows himself to be someone that is desperately sinful and in desperate need of a savior. The bite of death, excuse me, the bite of sin, the sting of sin, and the, the uh, pervasiveness of it. That's the word I want to use. He sees it now. And the way of putting it for him is sin has come alive in my life. My, uh, my dad was a physician. I think I've mentioned that before sometimes in sermons. Uh, first part of his career, he was a surgeon, but then he kind of had a second act of his career. He was trained as a pathologist and a researcher. And pathology is a field that covers a lot of different things, but the main thing that he did day in and day out is he would actually uh, look at uh, tissue samples under the microscope to diagnose diseases. Uh, to see if diseases were there, and if they were there, to see what type and what kind they were. So, for instance, if I were to go in and to the doctor and they're like, you know what, we're worried about you, Josh. We think you might have, uh, Lord forbid, but, you know, lung cancer. They would take a biopsy, a little sliver of tissue from my lung, and they would send it to the pathologist to look at under the microscope. But that tissue, if you just put it under a microscope by itself and looked at it, you wouldn't see anything. It would just be tissue that's undistinguishable. What my dad would do is he would use stains and dyes and inks, these chemicals that would then be put on the tissue slide. And if any cancer cell was there, it would react to it and it would show itself. It would turn a different color or it would organize itself in a certain telltale pattern. And the pathologist's job was to look at that and see if he could distinguish these cancer cells that were sort of popping out in visibility once he stained the slide. And it's not a perfect example, I know. It's got places where it falls apart, but I just, I couldn't help but thinking this week, it's almost like the law is like that stain that's put on our heart, it's put on our mind, our soul, and all of a sudden the things that are already there make themselves visible. We can see them. We can notice them. And in the case of our sin, we can notice how deep and how pervasive it really is. So, to come back to our main point that I told you that today was all about, the law of God opens our eyes to see how deep and how present sin actually is in our life. And interestingly enough, Paul's main point as he's doing this very intricate dance about the distinction between law and the sin that takes advantage of it, his main point is to say something different, and yet almost as an accident, he ends up revealing that one of the reasons the law is so good is because it alone can do that for us. That is, shine the light on who we are 
so we begin to know ourselves and know in what desperate need we truly exist. I've told you a few times that it's a good place to be at that moment of desperation when we actually see ourselves. And I think I'm finally ready to explain why that is. And I want to do it by using an example from my own life. It's when I was a college student. I had become a believer when I was a freshman in college. I was 18 years old. And I remember, even though I had grown up in the church, even though I had been around Sunday school and the Bible for a long time, I had never actually read through big portions of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so I decided that I wanted to do that. And I wanted to start with the New Testament. So first stop, Gospel of Matthew. Reading through Matthew, and very early on I come to chapter 5, which the heading of my Bible told me was the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I had been around church enough to know what the Sermon on the Mount, just the gist of it. And I remembered bits and pieces, sermons I had heard over the years, memory verses we had had. I knew that it was Jesus' teaching on kind of the ethics of following him, how to live, so to speak. So I was like, great, I'm a new Christian. Like, I, I think I'm doing pretty good, but this will be good to uh, kind of add some things to my repertoire, to my life, get my ducks in a row. And so I start reading Matthew chapter 5. And by the end of it, I did not have such a cheery outlook. <laughs> I was crushed. Because in it, I actually saw myself. So, you might know this already, but that beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins with the Beatitudes, the, the blessed are the poor in spirit statements. But then he begins, to, he begins to speak about the law, and he begins to apply it in a way that is radical, with a breadth and depth that no one had ever seen before. So he says, you've heard it said that thou shalt not kill. There we go, Ten Commandments, right? But I say to you, if any of you are angry in your heart towards your brother, if any of you have said, you fool, towards your brother, you are just as guilty. You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if any of you have had a lustful, lustful thought towards a woman in your mind, in your heart, you are just as guilty. Or we could add a lustful thought towards a man in your heart and in your mind. You are just as guilty. You've heard it said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, Jesus says, if somebody slaps you across the face, you turn the other cheek. If someone takes your garment, offer them the other one too. And then here's the cherry on top. Just to sum it all up, if we aren't feeling crushed enough already, Jesus says, therefore... Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Can you see why I was crushed? I thought I was going to just get some helpful rules for living the abundant life. And instead, I had this spotlight shined within. And these places in which I had thought that I loved my neighbor well. Places where I thought I had loved God well were shown to be very shallow. 
Jesus uh, wields the law in Matthew chapter 5 in a way that, that opens up whole new dimensions to my understanding of my sinful, broken state. He wields the law in such a way to give me whole new ways to think about how I am called to a standard that I don't live up to. And if you read that honestly and sincerely, it crushes you. But I didn't stay crushed that day that I read Matthew chapter 5. In fact, what happened next was I went from a place of despair to a place of actual joy and worship. Because as a new believer in Jesus, I had been told that Jesus Christ had died on the cross to pay for the depth of my sin. Even though I didn't know the depth of it at the time, even though it seemed to be getting deeper and deeper, the more I read through the scripture, his grace was sufficient to cover it. That's why I've said multiple times that to be in that place where you see yourself and know yourself as yucky as that can be, that is a good place to be. Because when you are there, you are finally ready to hear the gospel. When you are there, you are finally ready to hear Jesus Christ say to you, my grace is sufficient for you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I think most of us walk through life never even aware of the depth of sin that Jesus paid for. And we see, we have the spotlight shined on it by the law every now and then. And we say, oh my goodness, Jesus, you paid for that? And he's like, yeah, I did. I know you didn't realize it, but I did. And here's why I think being in this spot is so beautiful. is because when I see more and more the reality that my sin is deep and deep and deep and deep, then I also see in tandem the reality that the grace of Jesus is deep and deep and deep and deep and deep and deep. And the clearer I see myself, the more in love I fall with the Savior that paid it all for me. I used to just think that he paid like 50 cents. Now I'm thinking he paid closer to $5 billion. And you know what? If I make it to 80 years old, I'll probably be saying he paid closer to $5 trillion. Your desperation that comes from knowing yourself breeds desire for the Savior. And if it takes the law to show us that, then I'm ready to say that the law of God is good. Then I'm ready to say, thank you, Jesus, for the law. Because if part of its function is to show me my need for the Savior and make me run to him, then thank you for it. You know, the very last verse that was in our text today says this. It's sort of the conclusion. He says, so then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Amen. It is. And there's so many things that we could say for why that's true. Part of the reason the law is good is because it's come from God. He gave it. By definition, good. <laughs> Part of the reason the law is good is because it reflects his character. 
and who he is. Part of the reason it's good is because the law is a guide for human flourishing. All of those things are what make it good and just and righteous. But we can add to that after today, it is also good because it shows us who we are. Or more precisely, who we're not. And then it takes us by the hand and leads us to the Savior that says, my grace is sufficient for you. Let's pray. Father God, I hope that we can all come away from this worship service meditating and thinking about what's really going on in our hearts. Lord, I, I don't want anybody to come away from this sermon uh, being in a neurotic place of self-hating and self-loathing. That's not the point. The point is that we would be honest about who we are so that we could immediately then turn to being honest about who you are and how you love us and show us your grace in ways that are well beyond our imagining. Lord, I'm convinced that's what gives us real joy. And so I pray that you would do that work within all of us. It's in the name of Jesus we ask. Amen.